You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Thank you very much, Miss Diana. What a great song, a great truth. Uh, that same God that we were talking about that wears every crown is our personal shepherd. And you talk about just unbelievable that he would care for me like that being who he is. Amen. And I'm just thankful for a truth uh, that's that. Um, they're both incredible truths. They seem like they're contradictory, but we serve a God that can be anything. And uh, he is worthy of our greatest praise, but he's also there in our darkest hours. And I'm grateful for that very much this morning. Thank you. Uh, I've always been fascinated with the Wild West. And um, if you know anything about our family, you know that when we take vacations, my idea of a vacation is to get in uh, our family vehicle and drive thousands of miles across the, the wildernesses of the western United States. I don't know why I enjoy it so much. The West fascinates me. It just... Uh, just the vast expanses and the open spaces. And I, I think about pioneers discovering new places. When, uh, when we were out west uh, this year, we, were, we went to Washington State where I preached at a camp and a, a couple churches up there. And, and we drove along this highway and, and along the highway uh, is where, about where the Oregon Trail had gone through. Is there in eastern Oregon. And, and we stopped at this, uh, this rest area and it had a map. The Oregon Trail was just a couple of miles away from where we were right there, and you could go see wagon ruts and, and things. It just fascinates me to think about that. I, uh, as a kid, I used to maybe romanticize it a little bit, and that in my mind, it was probably way better than it actually was. You know, you talk about the good old days, and, and I'm not sure that the good old days were always as good as, as maybe we think they would have been. As a kid, I'm thinking about sleeping under the stars, and how, how great that would be, just me, and, and I'm not a horse guy necessarily, but as a kid, I thought I was, and sleeping under the stars with just me and my horse, and, and uh, cooking a fire out there, and exploring all these new places. In my mind as a kid, I'm thinking everywhere I go, I'm just exploring. I'm not trying to survive, I'm just exploring. But I'm pretty sure we all know it was not all fun and games. It was cold. It was dangerous. Many lost their lives to the elements, and one part of it that I've become more aware of as an adult is the lawlessness of the Wild West. You know, you read stories about cattle rustlers, and you read stories about these, these duels at high noon, and, and stagecoach robberies, and the shootout at OK Corral, and Jesse James and his gang of outlaws, and, and as a kid, I thought that was pretty cool. The longer I think about it, the more I realized, no wonder they called it the Wild West. It was wild and it was lawless. And, and I still find it intriguing, but it's no longer just because of the stories. I find it intriguing because it really gives a glimpse into human nature. When there is no law, when there's nothing to keep it in check, it turns into chaos. When there's little to keep human beings in check, mankind's spiritual down, or spiral downward does not take very long. We we need laws because of our nature. And if you're in a town with no sheriff, if, if you were in a town with no law, no wonder it devolved because our human nature would cause it to go there. 
it's tough. I, even today, I think about in our country, we've got plenty of laws, but, but it's, it's tough to read the news, isn't it? I mean, even in a, even in a country with, with laws in place, there's still an, uh, maybe an air of lawless, lawlessness that takes place. I mean, if you read the news even yesterday and just this morning, you see the lawlessness. I mean, you, you see shootings and you see these things happening and, and, and people, that's human nature. When it's not kept in check, we, we, we devolve into that. I mean, just recently on a smaller scale, uh, a, a couple of weeks ago, we came to the church and, and there's a, a glass pane, a, a window there that was broken in the front entry. If you saw it, uh, if you were here last week, you probably saw it. And, and so uh, I had the interns go and part of their role this summer is video tape checker, okay? So I said, go back and look and, and see if we can see anything. And sure enough, we see a 13 or 14-year-old boy come up on a scooter and, and he's riding around in front of the window. And then he goes off, off the camera and then we see a rock. The window shatters. And then we see him ride off and to wherever he's going, just yesterday, I was in my neighborhood uh, running. I was jogging and, and, uh, and trying to survive. And I was running on one side of the street. And, and our neighbor, two, stores, two doors down, was, their house was right here. And I was running past it. And I see a young man um, with, with a hoodie. And he had a hoodie over his head. And, and I saw him walk up to the neighbor's house. And I know they don't have any, any kids or teenagers that live there. And uh, I saw him walk up to the house. There's a bike in the front entryway. He gets on the bike, turns it around, and rides off down into the neighborhood. I'm like, huh, that's a little bit interesting. And, of course, he was on a bike, and, and I'm an incredibly fast jogger, but I could not keep up with him on the bike, so I didn't see where he went. So I came back around, and, and sure enough, that, that was our neighbor's bike, and somebody had just walked up to their porch and taken it and, and rode off on it. You know, it's, it, those two illustrations and the news give us a picture, a glimpse into human nature. You know, it's not legal to steal a bike off someone's porch. It's not legal to damage someone's property. It, it's not legal to walk into a room and open fire. Those things aren't legal. It's against the law. But as humans, our nature would have us to defy the law. Our human nature would have us go against the law because we struggle against God's law. We are sinners by nature. And those are some of the thoughts that John is dealing with here in 1 John. He's just finished exhorting the members of God's family. As we looked at last week, he's just finished exhorting them um, to allow God's amazing love to make the changes in their lives that it can. It makes us children of God. It makes us different from the world. And it gives us hope for the future which should in turn cause us to purify ourselves. That's what we talked about last week. Your biggest moment is coming up, and when you stand before Christ at your judgment seat, uh, He will judge you, and I hope you're ready for that moment. Are you preparing for that moment by purifying yourself? That's John's initial thought and his initial message here in chapter 3. And then he, he speaks about purity and how that's a mark of God's family. If we follow Christ as we should, we will clean house before He returns. We should not operate the way that we used to operate. But for many, submitting to God is still a struggle. It's against our nature. And that leads into the thoughts for today's message. 
And in, in, look at verses 3 and 4. It says, And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. John is con- contrasting the person who purifies himself with someone who is marked by a life of sin. The person who is pure and clean before God is like that citizen who submits himself to the law. He follows the rules. He he pays his dues. He doesn't push boundaries. He's willing to live within the confines of the law because those are the rules that the authorities have decided upon. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that every law makes sense or that every rule makes sense. I'm not even saying that following the law is always easy. I mean, I have experienced that in the last few months. I, I didn't realize that Iowa could send you a ticket by taking your picture. So on the way up here to candidate and stand, you know, stand before you and say, I am qualified to be a pastor. I got a $100 ticket in the mail the next week. But I hadn't gotten the ticket yet. And in the same place there in Sioux City, I didn't slow down quite enough. And I got another ticket. So I got one on the way there. I got one on the way back. And honestly, I was being passed the entire time. So I thought, you know, flow of traffic. Well, Iowa has the cameras. So we were very careful. Anytime we drive through Sioux City now, we're slowing down. We're not going to get another ticket. Well, then all the flooding took place. So they rerouted us. And we, one of the routes we took coming back up was through Council Bluffs, Iowa. We're trying to find a turn. We're not paying attention. And we kind of run through a red light. And a giant flash goes off. And my wife and I looked at each other and said, once again, <laughs> contributing to Iowa's economy. Sure enough, in the mail, last week, two weeks ago, another ticket for $100. I mean, they, I, they are getting more of my money than South Dakota right now. <laughs> you know, and so it's not always easy, though. I'm not even saying those were intentional, but it's not always easy to follow the law. It doesn't have to make sense, though, for me to obey it. Honestly, uh, unless it violates the law of God as a citizen of this country, biblically, I am mandated to submit myself to the laws of this government. I can choose to live that way. That's that's the picture that John is trying to give us in verse 3 of those that are preparing for their moment. They're living the right way. They're not defying God's law. But the opposite is pictured in verse 4. This is the person in verse 4 who operates as if they live in the Wild West. It's lawless. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. Sin is the transgression of the law. This person pays no attention to the rule. They, they push the boundaries. That's what verse 4 looks like as a citizen. But it looks even worse, though, as a citizen of heaven. It's one thing uh, to, to disobey the traffic laws of Iowa and get a ticket. But John is saying that even worse than that is transgressing God's law. Someone who breaks God's law and sins. To sin is to miss the mark. It's to fall short. Getting tickets in Iowa is one thing. But standing guilty before a holy, just God is a terrifying prospect. He's a God of tremendous love, yes, as we've already heard, but being guilty before him as a lawbreaker is a dangerous position in which to be. Not only is it dangerous, but it's also tragic, honestly. 
Look at verse 5, it says, And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. It's a tragedy to choose to live like you're in the lawless wild west, because that's not why you were created. The Bible says there in verse 5 that Jesus Christ came to take away our sins. He came for the express purpose to remove our sins so we don't have to live in transgression of the law. John the Baptist in John 1, he declared, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. The whole purpose for God sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to this planet was so that He could provide a way for your sins to be taken away. And Romans 3.23 says, We've all sinned and come short of the glory. And Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Our sin makes us lawbreakers before God. We each stand guilty before God, and our penalty is death. But the judge loves us so much that he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross and pay that penalty. He was manifested in verse 5, according to verse 5, he was manifested to take away our sins. Why? So that you and I can have a relationship with our Father, God. Jesus Christ's whole purpose for coming was to take away our sins. That's what it says. And the reason that he could take away our sins is also found in verse 5 when it says, you know that he was manifested to take away our sins and in him is no sin. Now that's important because he was the only one qualified to take away our sins. We were guilty. We were guilty in thought. We're guilty in word. We're guilty in deed. We're guilty in every action. Yet Christ came and he lived 30 plus years and never once broke the law of God. Jesus Christ came and he was sinless his entire life because he's not a sinner. He has no sin nature. And that qualified him to be our substitution on the cross. He was innocent. We were guilty. The innocent died for the lawbreakers. You should be thankful for that this morning. That's why he came. He came to die in your place and remove the guilt that is on your life because you have missed the mark with sin. And that's why it's so tragic that we would disregard his sacrifice and live like we're in the Wild West. It's tragic for us to disregard the entire purpose of Jesus Christ to die on that cross in our place and take our sins. It's tragic then for us to be on this earth as a purpose to reflect Him and be found in His image, but choose to live a life of sin. To choose to live a life that disregards everything for which He came. He was manifested to take away your sins. And what John is trying to do is to give the family oh, some way to distinguish between two categories of people. And I'm just going to use these today to kind of illustrate it and maybe have it stick in our minds a little bit. Every person is in one of two camps. Every person in this room this morning is in one of two categories. And I want you to pay attention because I want you to understand and maybe examine and reflect and determine which camp you're in. Every person in God's eyes is in one of two places. Either you're a law-abiding citizen or you're a law-breaking outlaw. Either you're a law-abiding citizen or you are a law-breaking outlaw. And John is trying to help the family to understand that the way a person acts toward God's law indicates whether or not they're part of the family. 
Your approach to God's law, your approach to God's word, your approach to what God teaches indicates whether or not you're part of the family, whether or not you bear the family traits. Your approach to sin and law indicates that. You see, this letter was written to believers who were dealing with false teachers. And these false teachers were trying to deceive them. And we could go back in chapter 2 and see how the false teachers were telling them that Jesus Christ was not God. And then we come at the end of that chapter and into chapter 3. And they're being told that a believer can live like they want to live. These were the Gnostics, you'll remember. And they were saying things like, try everything. You go try whatever you want. Your body's temporary. Any sin that you commit doesn't matter. Live it up. You go enjoy life because your body will burn up someday and you might as well have full knowledge of good and evil. Just go live it up. Go live like you want to. And John's trying to combat that lawlessness. He's like the sheriff. And I always love the moment in the westerns when the sheriff rides into town and it used to be on a white horse. He rides into town on his white horse and, and he's going to come and he's going to clean things up. But you know, it, 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 there's, a, there's this moment where he's, when he comes into town and he's not sure who's on his side or not. Well, I mean, in the movies it was obvious because they have black horses. But the sheriff hadn't caught on to that yet. So he comes into town and he's riding that white horse and he rolls up into town and, and, he's, and he, now he has the badge and he's trying to figure out who's on his side or not. He's trying to determine who's on his side. And you know who was, who was on his side? And by the end of it, you could always tell because the ones that broke the law were outlaws. The ones that kept the law were on his, his side. The law-abiding citizens and the outlaws were separated by their treatment of the law. So John tells the family, look at the evidence. If you want to know whether or not someone's truly part of the family, the first indication is the practice of sin. And I'll explain what that means here in just a minute. It will help us to understand this text. The first indication of whether or not someone's part of the family is the practice of sin. Now, we've already talked about verse, verse 5. It says, You know that He was manifested to take away our sins, and in Him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in Him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen Him, neither known Him. And that first word, abide, we've already covered that. We did last week. And it means to remain. It means to, it means to continue. When we remain or continue in close proximity to Jesus Christ, it affects the frequency of our sin. If you stay close to Jesus Christ, you will sin less. It's like wait, with my children. You know, when I'm with my children, they don't have a tough time behaving. Because I'm standing right there. But we have some children in our house that if you turn your eye for one moment, you have no idea what's going to happen. See, the closer the proximity to their father, the better they behave. And it's no different for us, folks. The closer our proximity to Jesus Christ, the less sin that we engage in. We abide, we remain, we remain in close proximity. Abiding in Christ means we are right with Him. We're spiritually aware of right and wrong. We're far less prone to give in to temptation of our sin nature. But I want to talk about the word sinneth for a minute. Because this passage, this verse, has been controversial for Bible readers for a long time. 
If you're not careful, you'll misunderstand John's point here, and it could cause some doctrinal errors when you read, Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not, whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither know him. Now, in the English language, we have verbs, and I I was just talking to someone else about English, and it's been a long time since I understood or diagrammed English. But in the English language, we have verb tenses, and those tenses are past, present, and future. You did do something, you are doing something, you will do something. Past, present, and future, that makes sense, simple enough. Well, in the Greek language, there's another indicator. Not only does it tell us the time of the action, but it also tells us what kind of action. It doesn't just say it was back then or it is now or it will be. It tells us what kind. The present tense verb always, in the Greek language always points to a continuous action in present time. It's ongoing right now. Well, the word sinneth in verse 6 is a present tense verb which points to a continuous action. It means a person that habitually commits sin. When it says, whosoever committeth sin, transgresseth, that's in verse 4, whosoever committeth sin, transgresseth also the law. Verse 6, whosoever abideth in him, sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth, hath not seen him. The word sinneth in verse 6, in, most, in this passage, most of these verbs are that, that present tense verb. And in that present tense verb, it points to a continuous action. Continuous action is similar to our word practices or makes a habit out of. We could read this verse this way, whosoever abides will not practice sin as a habit of life. But whosoever practices sin as a habit of life hath not seen him, neither known him. You understand? It can be confusing if you're just, if you're just reading it for face value, but that's not what John is saying. He's saying if you continue in sin then you don't know Jesus Christ. If you abide, if you continue to abide in Him, then then you won't sin because you're abiding closely. You're in close proximity. So if we're summarizing verses 4 through 6, we would say the following. If a person practices abiding, if he's continually close to Jesus Christ, he will not live a lifestyle of sin. If a person practices a lifestyle of sin... According to John, he does not know know God. He hasn't seen God. Do you see again, there are two very clear categories here. You have the law-abiding citizen, and you have the law-breaking outlaws. There's really no middle ground for John here. You're either a good citizen, or you're an outlaw. And John says, here's the contrast. If a person abides in Christ, he does not practice sin. If 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 a sin is his way of life, though, he does not know Christ as Savior. Now, the last thing I want to do to you this morning is to create doubt. That's not my purpose today. I'm simply telling you what John wrote. See, I, I don't want to create doubt, but it does not bother me much if, if by going through John's writings, if we create a spirit of self-examination. I'm not trying to get you to doubt your salvation today, and I'm trying to get you to, to doubt whether or not that really happened. I'm trying to, give, to, to instill in us a spirit of self-examination. We must be willing to filter both our practices and the practices of others through the lens that John gives us. It's right in the Bible. Amen. Notice one thing. This, isn't, this is not about the presence of sin. It's about the practice of sin. And there's a big difference, folks. It's not about the presence of sin. This is about the practice of sin. We are all sinners. 
Even if you're part of the family, and even if you're, for many years you've exhibited family traits, as long as you live in that body of flesh that you have, you have a sin nature that wars against your spirit. And, but John is not saying that if you sin, you're not saved. That's not what he's saying. That would go against other things he's written. We could go back to 1 John. Let's look, just look over and glance a couple pages earlier, 1 John chapter 1. If John is saying that we, once we get saved, we never sin, then he's already contradicted himself. Look at 1 John 1.8. It says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Look at verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Look at the next verse, two, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So based on what John wrote in chapters 1 and 2... Do you think that he is saying here in chapter 3 that if you're part of the family, you will never sin? No, it would contradict the very things that he's already written. John's not contradicting himself. He's not presenting some new idea. And here's a good practice for us. If you're a Bible reader, which I hope you are, then when you interpret the Bible, you should first start interpreting the Bible with the Bible. That's your best place to start. A lot of people get mixed up because when they're trying to interpret what a passage of Scripture says, they open a book someone else wrote on the matter first. But what we ought to do is take that truth and compare it with what the Bible says in other places. That's our very first step. And when it seems like there's a contradiction, always assume you're the one that's wrong, not the Bible. That's a good practice to be in. See, John never teaches against the presence of sin in a believer's life because there will be, according to what he already wrote, there will be times when we occasionally give in to the temptation. There will be times, those moments, when we fail. We'll, need our, we'll find ourselves in need of forgiveness. And that's why John wrote oh, back over in chapter 1, verse 9, that we can, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. And it cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We need to take John's advice. We need to confess our sin. God is faithful. He'll cleanse us. I'm thankful for that. John is not teaching that a law-abiding citizen will not experience the presence of sin. He's teaching that a law-abiding citizen will not engage in continuous sin. He's teaching that a law-abiding citizen, if they're part of the family, they will not continue in sin. So I'm going to go back to these speeding tickets because they still bother me. If over the next six months I get two more speeding tickets going through Sioux City and each time I get them, I pay them on time and after that it go a long, I go a long time without getting a ticket. Would you assume that I'm an outlaw if that took place? Probably not. Now, if over the course of the next six months, I get one ticket every week, it gets very expensive. Would you at that point assume that by nature I'm pretty much a rebellious outlaw? I think you would. You see, it's not about the presence of sin. It's, it's about the continuous practice of sin. It's not that we don't occasionally mess up, that we don't occasionally trip up. It's that if we continue there, that's where we start, really need to start examining ourselves 
because it's not an occasional moment. That's not what John is talking about. It's talking about a present, a practice that it just happens continually. That's his whole point in this text. If a person practices a lifestyle and habit of continuous sin, here's John's conclusion. They do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Look at verse 8. It says, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. Wow. He that practices a life of sin is reflecting of Satan himself. Now, Satan does not... Would you assume that Satan would be the kind that gets one ticket every six months? Or do you think he would be speeding through there every day no matter what? Satan's an outlaw. Satan's the guy on the black horse. Satan will do everything he can to, de- de- to defeat and fight against God's purposes. He does not slip into occasional sin. His life is about defying God's law. And sometimes we'll say about somebody else, well, they live like the devil. That usually points to a life of continuously practicing sin. And all of this is tragic because Jesus Christ came to take away sin. It says in verse 8 again, he that committed sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So if we were to take, uh, if we were to try to form uh, an opinion on why Jesus Christ came based on this passage alone, we, would, we could conclude two things. Jesus Christ came to take away sins, and Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. That's Jesus Christ's purpose. So for anyone to practice a life of sin is to undo the very purposes for which Jesus Christ came into this world. Let me insert this. If you would say that your practice is sin, I'm not judging your position today. That's not my place. But what I am trying to do is get you to look into the mirror of God's word. And I hope that you will see yourself for who you truly are. The word of God is the one making judgment. John, through the influence of the Holy Spirit, is bringing you to a place of self-examination And friends, today, if you continue in sin and your life reflects the kind of living of the devil, then you you must not leave this place without being sure that you're a member of the family. I'm begging you today, if you say, yes, my life is characterized by continuous practice of sin, I'm continuously in sin, I'm practicing sin, and yes, my works, the works of my life, most closely resemble the works of Satan himself and not of Jesus Christ. I'm not standing up here to bash you this morning. I'm not standing up here to judge you this morning. The Word of God does that for you. But I hope that you will take that evidence in your own life as you self-examine yourself. You would take that evidence and say, I must not leave this place without receiving Jesus Christ as my Savior and being born into the family. It's not about making you feel bad. It's not about making you look bad. It's about potentially you coming to terms with the fact that you are not part of the family today. You are the one that I'm asking to self-examine and look into the evidence. Is it possible to be in sin and be saved? Well, I think a lot of things are possible. But I don't believe there's much evidence from the Bible that says... You can engage in a sinful lifestyle for any length of time and assume that you're part of the family. I know that's hard to hear, and I know it's not very popular to stand up here and say those words today, 
I'm just giving you what the Bible says. To continue there is when we must stop and examine ourselves. The first test of a true family is the practice of sin. The second test, the second indication is the presence of righteousness. Look at verses 7 and verse 9. It says, Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. Whosoever is born of God, verse 9, doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. If a person is a member of the family, it will be evident in their life. You'll be able to look at their life and again, we see the present term, the present verb tense here in verse 7. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness. It's that same present tense. If a person is doing righteousness, he is, is continually doing righteousness. The person that continues in a lifestyle of righteousness, he must be righteous because God is righteous and he reflects his Father. When you have a right relationship with God, it will be obvious. There will be righteousness. I used this illustration a little bit last week uh, just because it is standing out so vividly in my mind still. But I went golfing for the first time with my brother uh, last week and, and I can't get over it because it was so bad. So I went golfing with him and I was, as I was out there, my, you know, I was out there I'm, I, was I out there because I'm a golfer? No. I was out there trying to look like a golfer. I was out there trying to become a golfer. Maybe if I practice enough, I'll become one. On the other hand, my brother who I was playing with, he is a golfer. He's a pretty good golfer. He was out playing golf because he is a golfer. I was out playing golf because I was trying to become a golfer. And there's a big difference, isn't there? See, if you are a member of God's family, then you will be righteous because you're a member of God's family. You can't help it. It, it will just happen because you have a different nature now. If you are righteous, then if you practice righteousness continually, then you're part of the family. You are righteous. We don't go out and we don't, we don't try to act righteous in order to, to obtain righteousness. I could never in my own strength do anything that comes close to pleasing God with my own works. It can't happen. But if I am part of the family, it will be evident in the practice or presence of righteousness. I'm not even saying you have to be perfect. Nobody's perfect. But there ought to at least be a strong desire in your life to reflect your Savior and struggle against your self-will. Look at verse 9. It says, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. This verse has been, part, has been often seen as a proof of sinless perfection, meaning some people will take this verse to say that we can get to a place that we no longer sin. But we have to read it with John's context in mind. This verse does not say that a person who is born of God never commits a sin. Remember, the context of the passage and read it that way. John is saying, whosoever is born of God doth not commit. Again, present tense verb. Whosoever is born of God doth not continually live in sin, does not commit sin continually. John is trying to say that whosoever is born of God does not practice sin as a way of life. 
If you're born of God, that's not your practice. If you're born of God, you practice righteousness. He does not stay or continue in some habit of sinning. He stays generally in the habit of righteousness. And here's why, John says, because at the end of verse 9, he says he cannot sin. No, middle of verse 9, whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him. Okay, that got really confusing. Well, not really. Every believer, every child of God has a new nature dwelling in them that was placed there when you were saved. God puts something different in you. There's a difference. If you really became part of the family, if you were really saved, 2 Peter 1.4 says that we have been partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We are partakers of a divine nature. There's been something different placed in us. God has given us his nature. We are new creatures, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians. We have a spirit that has been quickened and made alive, and that part of us does not sin. That part of us has been made alive to God. What's wonderful about the new nature is that there is finally placed within us a balance to our sin nature. If you live a life of frustration because you can't seem to get over doing wrong, there at least, if once you get saved, the divine nature is placed in you, and now there is at least a battle. And we may not win every time, like in those old westerns. Usually there's a few defeats along the way before the final outcome is good. You're not going to win every time, but you could win every time. Because placed within you is God's own divine nature, and it gives you hope that you can overcome that lawlessness. It gives you hope that you don't have to give in to your flesh, and there's a battle raging every time. We can have hope to overcome the strength of our flesh because of what has been placed within us. That new divine nature given to us by God, it can't be compromised. It will never be corrupted by sin. That nature also can't be removed from us. Verse 9 says that it remaineth in him. It remaineth in us. If a person is truly saved, that can't be taken away from you. Our position in Christ is secure. I know that last phrase, though it sounds confusing, it says he cannot sin. Because he's born of God. But I just want you to remember the the context of this whole passage. And he cannot sin means, and he cannot continue to practice sin as a habit of life because he's born of God. If you're born of God, you cannot live that way. You cannot stay that way. We may have our ups and downs, but you can guarantee, based on what John says, that a person who's truly part of the family cannot continue to practice sin as a habit of life because he's been born again. He has a new nature. And that nature within him causes him to no longer just be pleased to be settled in the mud. And then verse 10. It says, In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. And he says, Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. And it gives two meaning, or two distinctions here. And again, I just want you to notice there's two categories of people. There are those who are law-abiding citizens. Those are the children of God. And if your life is characterized by keeping the law of God and displaying righteousness in a continuous way, then you're part of the family. That's what John's saying. That's the first category. The second category is the law-breaking outlaws. 
These are those that, according to verse 10, are the children of the devil. The practice of sin characterizes the outlaws. The presence of righteousness is evidence of the law-abiding citizens. Here it is today, folks. Your treatment of God's law puts you in one of those two categories. The evidence in your life is pointing to which category that you are in. So let me ask you this. Based on the evidence today, which category describes you? Are you part of the law-breaking outlaws or the law-abiding citizens? See, today's modern church culture has been deceived. Many Christians in our country believe there are two options when it comes to following God. Plan A, yeah, plan A is for the really committed ones, the law-abiding citizens. Those people have it tough, I'm telling you. They have to be committed to it. These are like the Wyatt Earps, you know, that come along and they're going to clean up the town. You've got to be committed. You have to pay attention to the law. You've got to uphold it. They have to dress differently. They just have to be different and look different. They have to abstain from certain activities. They, they're not allowed to go to the fun places. Their children have to be sheltered from all the popular trends. They have to go to some boring service. They don't, they don't get to spend their money how they want to. They have to give to missions and maybe even become a missionary and go overseas. And man, it's just not very fun. It's, it's you know, not very fun. Well, but at least someday they'll get their rewards in heaven. You know, honestly, that's the way that many people look at it if you're a committed Christian. And they say, well, you know, they're committed to that level, but I don't really believe that, that being a follower of Christ has to change you that much. So they believe there's also a plan B, and plan B is an option. It's kind of a, a mix of, you know, yeah, you're saved, but you can kind of live like it's the Wild West a little bit. And this is where you get to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, but you don't have to follow all the rules. You can still go to heaven when you die, but you don't have to be as committed to that. You can just come on Sunday mornings. Just come Sunday morning. You don't have to come on Sunday night or Wednesday night if they have services over there. I mean, if you've got a free evening, that's fine. But, but coming to Sunday morning, that's fine. That's good enough. You can come Sunday mornings and, and, and that'll be fine. God will be pleased with it. You can, you can even engage in some of those old sins you used to partake of. And, and you won't get as many rewards in heaven, but at least you get to still enjoy some of what life has to offer right now. There are those who, who think that riding the, walking the line of saying, yes, my citizenship is there, uh, but I, get to, I, I just kind of want to live like it's the Wild West a little bit over here. I can, I can still engage in some social drinking. That's not a big deal. I don't really have to change the way I look when I go out, and I can still go to the places I used to as long as I don't do everything else that they're doing. I mean, this is, it's, it's fine. I, you know, yeah, there are some rules and there are laws, and, and, and I just don't feel like I, I have to be that committed. I can, I can still go to heaven, and maybe I don't have as many rewards, but it's hard to give some of this stuff up. If I'm really committed, I don't, I don't get to spend my money the way I want to. I don't get to dress the same. I don't, I don't get to keep the old friends that I have. And that's tough to say goodbye to. I mean, there's some things I don't want to quit that I kind of enjoy. And I'll just kind of take the good and I'll just live over here. Listen, the enjoying the pleasures of sin for, for your, these 70 years, it, it doesn't, it's not a good trade. 
And here's why. Because Jesus Christ came to take away the very sins that you're engaging in. Jesus Christ's purpose for coming was to destroy the works of the devil. Not to save his people and then watch them enjoy the works of the devil while they're still here. Who are we to think that's a line that we can walk? And I'm not trying to be so hard this morning. I'm trying to appeal to you on the logic of what Jesus Christ came to do. He came to radically change your life. He came to take away the works of the devil that used to have you bound. Living like an outlaw Christian is not anything close to what John teaches. According to John, there's no plan B. You don't get to be Billy the Kid in the Wild West, but you're still friends with the sheriff. No, according to John, if you practice sin as a habit of life, it reflects your true nature. It's not even that I'm saying it's just a bad idea, although it is a bad idea because it disregards Christ's work. But that's not even my point this morning. My point today is that it's not that it's just a bad idea to walk the line. But if you're walking the line and you have a continuous habit of sin over here, then you need to stop and examine yourself because according to this passage, you may not even be part of the family. And I know that's tough. And as I prepared for this, I was thinking, why did I pick 1 John? Because this is tough stuff. But let me just say this. You do not have to continue to live like an outlaw. You can be a law-abiding citizen. The sins that bind you can be broken by the power of Christ's blood that we sang about in our first hymn today. If you're enslaved by the sin of drunkenness and alcohol and some addiction, Jesus Christ can set you free. If you're bound by the grips of pornography this morning, God wants to release you from those bonds of impurity. If you're in the clutches of Satan through bitterness and unforgiveness because of something that someone did to you in your past, justified or not, big or not, I'm not even talking about the the level of offense, I'm just saying if there's something in your life that has caused you to be bitter and unforgiving, that is a reflection of Satan himself, but Jesus Christ was manifested to take that sin away, and he can this morning. If you have some addiction, the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. If you can't help but be dishonest, if you've made some mistake that you can't take back, if you hate someone in your life, in your heart, and you cannot overcome it, Jesus Christ came to remove your sin if you'll but confess it. You don't have to live in that wild west of lawlessness. Engaging in sin is never worth the trade-off. If you're saved this morning and you're walking the line, you're over here on the easier path now. I can tell you it may be easier now, but when you stand before your Savior in your biggest moment, you'll regret every minute of it. And if if you claim to be saved, but you're over here walking with the outlaws, let me just encourage you to examine yourself this morning. Because the evidence doesn't point to that even really being possible. If you're not saved today, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, are you willing to trade eternity for the pleasures of sin? 
Are you willing to say, no, my pleasure and my enjoyment and the things that I do now are worth it if when you stand before God at the, at the great white throne judgment, he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Seventy years of pleasure isn't worth eternity of being separated from God. And I'm encouraging you today to examine yourself and if God's speaking to you about receiving Christ as your Savior, why don't you step forward this morning Come talk to me or someone up here at the front and we'll show you how you can be saved today. So what do your practices say about your position? The things that you continually do, are you more continuously reflecting sin? Are you more continuously reflecting righteousness? What sin in your heart, deep in your heart, reflects a Wild West mentality? Are you giving in to the old nature more than just occasionally? Has it become a practice? If so, examine yourself. Because if you're a part of the family, let Christ do his work to take away your sin and destroy that work of the devil. Live for that for which you were created, and that is to reflect Christ's sinless nature. If you've never become part of the family, let Christ do his work in you. Take away your sin. And destroy the work of Satan. He wants to do that to do that for you this morning. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Let's stand together as we prepare for the invitation. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.